0: Thank you for listening to CG Life with Steve Kortz. It's my hope that today's message will help you find and live the extraordinary life Jesus gives. After listening to this podcast, I'd like to invite you to connect with me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram for more updates and resources. Well, good morning. We have started a brand new series through the book of John. And we've used last Sunday and we're using this Sunday to introduce that book basically to kind of frame it for us with the most important themes to be found running through the book. Last week, we said that uh, while the gospel of Matthew mentions belief and believing the verb 10 times, Mark 10 times, and Luke nine times, John in his gospel mentions belief and believing at least 99 times. His theme again and again is belief believe, believe. His uh, premise is this. There is just one faith that will give you life. There is one faith that should direct your decisions, that should determine your direction, that should settle and secure your destiny. One faith, and that is faith in Jesus Christ. Now, as we said Every single one of us has a faith commitment. Regardless of our relationship with Christ, we all have a faith commitment. That faith commitment is what drives the way we live. We all have faith in something, and we all have faith about something. We all have faith... That this condition, this situation, this person, this goal, or whatever will actually give us life. And out of that faith commitment that this thing will bring life, give us meaning, purpose, and those kinds of things, out of that, then there comes a personal commitment to that condition, that person, that situation. So belief of whatever kind is always a belief that something is true and a belief in that thing so that we trust in it, we rely on it, and we give ourselves to it. John is saying, this is the faith that saves. This is the only faith that saves. It is a belief that Jesus is God's Christ and God's Son sent to save. That faith becomes saving faith when that truth accepted becomes a truth personally received and applied. I believe, a person must say, I believe that Jesus is God's Christ. He is God's son. And I have rested, I put, I place I, I, all of my life on him. I, I die to myself and I surrender myself completely to him, to his cause, to his will, to his ways. That's what saving faith involves. It is not enough to believe that. We have to also go on and believe In this Christ, this Jesus. Now, having said that, we're all faced with a question, and we saw this last week. John says, this is why I'm writing. I'm writing so that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. That's the whole point of the book. I'm writing so that you will believe. As soon as you begin to engage the book, you're faced with this set of questions. Do I believe this? Do I believe that Jesus is the Christ And then have I believed in this truth? Will will my life be centered on, shaped by Him? Or will it be shaped on and centered on something else? So disbelief or not believing in these things in these truths and on this Christ uh, becomes critical as well because faith is so important. Disbelief or unbelief is very important as well. From Jesus' perspective, Disbelief or unbelief is our single greatest danger as human beings. I'll let Jesus speak to this himself in a very famous passage, John chapter 3. Jesus says this, for God, explaining why he came, so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, possess eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Why? Because whoever believes in him is not condemned, but, watch this, whoever does not believe, have faith that and faith in this Christ is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Why? Well, this is the judgment. This is the reason. The light of Christ has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. So disbelief in Christ is the most serious condition any human being can have. It leads to judgment, Jesus says, and eternal condemnation. The New Testament tells us that this condition is prominent, this condition of unbelief is prominent, we all have it. It is problematic, there's no escape from it from our side of things, and it is persistent. We all have to deal with it. In fact, the New Testament also teaches that even believers have to deal with the challenge of unbelief, particularly at certain times and, and phases of life, where disbelief or unbelief in believers separates them from God and leaves them under judgment for sin Disbelief in believers actually alienates them from fellowship with God and leaves them vulnerable to the harm of sin. The New Testament shows us that One of the ways in which the Christian life perhaps is best understood is that it is a journey that includes unlearning the disbelief or the unbelief that is so habitual to us in favor of learning the faith that Christ has given us. We learn less and less to challenge Him more and more to trust Him. The great secret of the Christian life is not obey, obey, obey. The great secret of this Christian life is trust and obey. Trust and obey. Trust and obey. And when you don't trust him, when when you find yourself in a position where you don't trust who he is, what he's promised, what he's pledged, inevitably you will look for something else. You will live for something else and you will disobey. Let me show you, this is kind of how it works in a a believer's life. Um, A true believer, someone who has believed that, yes, and believed in. They've place their life, the rest of the foundation of their life on Christ. What typically happens, a great way to understand this is that in a believer's life, when there is a tragedy or when there is great success, immediately their faith in Christ is challenged. Let me unpack that. When there's a great, tra- great tra- uh, tragedy that comes into a believer's life, the great temptation for a believer is to begin to look for some other savior other than Jesus in the midst of that great hardship or tragedy. I've lost my job, who can save me? I've come down with an illness, who can save me? Uh, My marriage is falling apart, who can save me? I look for saviors somewhere else other than looking for help from the one whom I call savior. I look for a different savior. Always the the great challenge. Always the great uh, uh, danger for a believer when tragedy comes. I say, Jesus is not enough. I, I say, I believe that he is the Christ, the son of God. But when tragedy comes, I look for something or someone else to bring the rescue I need. Does that make sense? Now, success does something similar, but not exactly. When as a believer is living his or her life, walking with Christ, and great success comes... The temptation is not to look for another savior. The temptation is to look, for, for, look to that success as a substitute for Christ. To say, ah, this, this will satisfy. Uh, I, I get a, a, a windfall of money. I, go, I, I suddenly begin to put my faith and my, my expectation for fulfillment into that good thing, into that windfall of money or whatever it is. So I basically exchange Christ for this thing and say, that is now my fulfillment. That is another form of unbelief. I I look at Christ. He's the savior, the son of God. But in reality, I stop looking to him for my fulfillment. I look to something else. And that unfaithfulness, that disbelief that Christ is enough or so on is what leads to sin in the life of a believer. So Part of being a believer is unlearning that so that when tragedy comes, rather than leaning away from Christ, I stay and say, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, I trust you. I will continue to rest my life on you even in the midst of this crisis. I'm not going anywhere, I'm staying here. You're my savior. I I don't trust any other savior. So that's part of the way we unlearn the habit of unfaithfulness and continue to practice the habit of faithfulness. Same with success. No, 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 no. Yeah, this is a great thing that's happened. The allure is strong. It promises to fulfill me, but hey, I know the reality is only Christ can fulfill me. You are the Christ. You are the son of God. You are, you are the way in which God uh, chooses to fill me completely, make me whole. I'm staying right here with you. There is no blessing that I can come that I can come to have that could ever replace you. I will not look for fulfillment or satisfaction anywhere except in you. Does that make sense? So disbelief can be a problem for believers. Obviously it's a problem for unbelievers. I want you to uh, look with me today at John chapter 20, verses 24 to 29. It's fascinating to me that Jesus after, or John, after he has finally described for us in verses 30 and 31, what the point of his book is. He says, the point of it is, I want you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. That's what I want you to believe. Just before he makes that point and wraps up, gives his last word about faith. He actually speaks to this issue of unbelief just before it. In fact, it's a theme all the way through the book, but his last word on unbelief comes before his last word on belief. And that last word of unbelief comes to us in the form of a story, the story of Thomas, the story of Thomas. So as you find your way to John chapter 20, verses 24 to 29, let me give you the story behind Thomas's story, shall we? Let me do that for you. A week prior to the events of this passage on the first Easter Sunday, Mary saw the risen Christ. She runs to tell the apostles. Peter and John hear her message. They run to the tomb of the empty Jesus. After that, they go back and with with the, the other disciples meet behind locked doors for fear of those Jewish leaders who insisted on Jesus' death. The risen Jesus, able to pass through solid matter, appears to them in the flesh, shows them his hands and his side to prove that though his body has been raised and transformed, he is still the Jesus they knew. He gives them a mission to go and tell what they've seen and what it means. He equips them with the Holy Spirit. He tells them that their ministry will affect the the forgiveness and retention of sins. But the odd thing is in all of this this story behind the story is that one of the remaining 11 apostles is actually missing. And it's here that we pick up our story for the morning. Verse 24, the scripture says, now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless... I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side. I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them and the doors were locked and Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand. Place it in my side. Don't disbelieve, Thomas, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Lord God, let your, uh, let your power attend your word this morning. Open our minds and our hearts to hear all that you would say to see all that you would show us. And oh God, help us, I pray this morning, to have a sense of the presence of your son, this same Jesus, even in our midst today, for Jesus' sake, amen, amen. Now, you notice with me here that the relatively unknown apostle Thomas is made famous by this story. In fact, we have a moniker. We we have a a description of him that we use to apply to others. We call other people who are like him a what? Doubting Doubting Thomas. That's exactly right. Uh, That moniker, Doubting Thomas, is uh, applied to anyone who rarely trusts or believes things before having the proof they require. They're those skeptical persons who aren't easily convinced of anything. Now, It doesn't take much for us to sympathize with Thomas, initially, perhaps more now than ever in our culture when trust is in such short supply. More than ever, I guess, we need to see and we need to touch in order to believe and act and trust, especially, especially, if anything sounds too good to be true. Have you ever received news so good you couldn't quite believe it was true? I don't know what's going on with me, but in, in, in recent days, I've been getting a lot of email from very wealthy people in Africa. Um, well, they're actually dead. I should say from representatives of very wealthy people in Africa who have, for some unknown reason, left me hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars and uh, I, I'm not sure how, it hap- how it's happened, but it is just breaking out like nobody's business, right? Uh, and uh, it's, it's, it's incredible, it's wonderful. You know, they somehow chose me. I, how, I don't know. And uh, want desperately, the person writing wants desperately to send me all this money. And yet there is this small caveat that that in order for all this to happen, I've got to reach back out to them and then provide them with a uh, relatively, to this millions of dollars, relatively small fee in order for them to help me. Now immediately when I get one of those emails, I'm forced into a position. Do I believe this or do I disbelieve it? Do I believe this or do I delete it? What do I do? What do I do? Well, because I've never heard of this person. And I have serious doubts that you're the minister of finance for Kenya. (laughs) And it's hard for me to believe that the minister of finance for Kenya would actually be involved in something like this, dealing with me, who's never been to Kenya. I tend to go for delete. And in fact, I always go for delete, though I'm sometimes tempted to say, oh, listen, I have all the money I need. Why don't you just keep it? <laughs> Maybe I should try that. I don't know. But I, just like you, I'm suspicious of things that are too good to be true. So it doesn't take much for us to sympathize with Thomas. And and this news that Jesus was risen from the dead, it could sound too good to be true, You know, sometimes a little honest doubt might be in order. In fact, it can be in order. I wanna say to you, we're always right to ask for evidence when we're asked to believe something that matters. Even in the spiritual realm, especially in the spiritual realm. Faith in God always starts in doubt given the fall. We're all natural doubters given the fall. And faith in God can actually grow as a result of doubt. Think about Mary, God comes through an angel and says to Mary, you're you're going to have a son. And she says, how? I'm a virgin. I'm struggling with this. I'm not sure how to put this message together. Uh, the, The thing about Mary is she's saying how because she wants to believe, not because she doesn't. And there's a difference. I would say just as a sidebar, parents, when you've raised your children to hear and understand the gospel and they've put their faith in Christ, and then suddenly they express doubts. I, I wanna challenge you, don't go into panic mode, go into helping mode. Uh, see their doubt for what it is. Very oftentimes in, in the life of a believer, doubt, which is different from disbelief, but doubt is faith trying to grow deeper in the belief that God's uh, truth is actually true. And, and when doubt is worked through, belief that allows belief in to go even stronger. So don't go into panic mode. Go into help mode. Listen, our faith is anchored in truth. We don't have to fear the 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 uh, the need for uh, evidence. It is there. There are good reasons, very good reasons, to put your faith in Christ. Very good reasons to keep putting your faith in Christ. But what's going on here with Thomas is something different. Something very different. This doubt that Mary had is not what Thomas has. His Is a disbelief that denies the truth and demands evidence all with an agenda to try to avoid believing and obeying it. Jesus actually describes Thomas's problem as disbelief. It seems that what he had was neither simple nor honest. It wasn't a feeling of uncertainty. It was a bigger problem, a universal problem. I have it, you have it. The person seated next to you has it, and it's a disposition to disbelieve. And We all need to know not how we handle disbelief when it comes into our lives, but we, what we really need to know is how does Christ handle it? What does Jesus do when he finds disbelief in your life or my life? What does he do with it when it shows up? If we know what he does with it when it shows up, then we'll know what to do with him when he comes. So I want to examine this passage carefully for some answers. Christ takes three discernible steps in response to Thomas's disbelief. He confronts it, he exposes it, and then he corrects it. He confronts it, he exposes it, and then he corrects it. And anytime there is disbelief that comes into your life, believer, you will find him doing the same thing. You will find him doing the same thing. And for every person you know who doesn't have a living faith in Christ, as he begins to deal with them, he'll take these same three steps. He will confront it graciously, expose it directly, and correct it personally. Let's look at each of these together. Look, first of all, at verse 26, how Christ confronts unbelief and he does it so graciously. Eight days later, the scripture says, his disciples were inside again. Thomas was with them. The doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, "Peace." be with you. Now, this is a big moment. This is a big moment in the lives of the disciples uh, who have already seen him because it's a confirmation. What I saw really was real. Here he is again. But this is the, uh, a bigger moment for Thomas in particular. He's the one who laid down this challenge and said, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, unless I place my finger into the mark of the nails, unless I place my hand into his side, I will never believe, never, never. And now here is Jesus in the flesh, wounds and all come to take up Thomas's challenge. Uh, Can I just say as as a sidebar, don't ever challenge Jesus. I think it's significant though that Christ's first words are peace be with you. Peace to you was a traditional Jewish greeting. It it conveys the desire for, for wholeness, for wellness, for fullness. Peace is that shalom. Everything that God had promised in the Old Testament would come one day to his people. So after the cross, this is curious to me, but after the cross... What Jesus is doing here, this is less a greeting. It's more of a pronouncement. It's more of an announcement of blessing that has come from Jesus. The Old Testament uh, promises, he's saying, have now been fulfilled in his death for sinners. So just picture it with me. Jesus shows his wounds again, not just as an act of identification for Thomas, but also as a pointer to the peace he proclaims. He says, peace, peace. The peace of God has come and it depends on these wounds. The peace of God has come. These scars bring the peace that the world needs. Thomas, that you need as well. The other disciples, they rejoiced in what they saw. The first time they saw these wounds, they've tried to tell Thomas about it, but he will have none of it. They're beginning to understand as Jesus has come and appeared to them who Jesus really is and what he's done for them. But Thomas won't believe until he sees, until he touches. And immediately you wanna go, all right, Thomas, just what is your problem? What is your problem? Jesus points to it directly in verse 27. He exposes Thomas's disbelief directly. The scripture says, then he said to Thomas, hey, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand, place it in my side. Don't disbelieve, Thomas, but believe. Now notice with me, two commands here that reveal Thomas's real problem. First, Christ exposes Thomas's problem with a command that contains an invitation. He says, all right, you've laid down a challenge. You say you won't believe until you see. You say you won't believe until you touch. Here I am, see. Here I am, touch. Now this must have been absolutely chilling. Not just the fact that Jesus materialized behind uh, locked doors, but can you imagine if you were Thomas, you'd be going, "Oh, wait, wait a minute." He wasn't in the room when I said this. Nobody has seen him for a week. How did he know what I said? Does this mean he can hear? Even when I don't see him? Jesus' message is do what you demand, do what you require. Now, we don't know whether Thomas did touch, but he certainly saw the wounds. Notice the second command. It also exposes Thomas's problem with a rebuke. Jesus says, don't be that way. Don't be unbelieving, but believing. Don't, don't keep living with this denial and challenge of me as your disposition in life. Stop being so cantankerous. How many of you have got somebody in your life that is cantankerous? How many of you have ever been cantankerous? And how many of you have no idea what cantankerous is or means? Okay, we have got a lot of people who don't know what cantankerous is or means. I guess that means you can't spell it, and I guess that means you're stuck with your notes you you got, you got canned down, but tankerous is just kind of all jammed up in your head. Okay, well, that's all right. That's why I'm here, to help you grow and learn um, about Jesus, but also about not being cantankerous. All right, so cantankerous. <laughs> let, me, let me just put it to you this way. Cantankerous, when a person is cantankerous, it, it, it means that they absolutely will not cooperate with with anybody or anything. And they're always ready to rumble. They're always ready to argue. They're always ready to challenge. They're always ready to push back. They're just cantankerous. Cantankerous. Now let's do this all over again. How many of you have, have known someone who's cantankerous? Okay. How many of you now know what cantankerous means? And how many of you have actually been cantankerous? Just sideways. Ready to argue at the drop of a hat. Jesus says, stop. Stop. Stop being so cantankerous. Stop being so resistant. Stop pushing back all the time and demanding your own way. Stop. It's not good for you, Thomas. Instead, be believing. Be the kind of person who's, watch this, and this is critical, loved ones, whose disposition is to trust God, whose disposition is to believe him, not whose disposition is always push back. God says it, I push back. God God, uh, uh, directs me in a certain way, I push back. I said, no, I need this. I need that. No, 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 no. Don't don't be that way. That's a recipe for an unhealthy life. Stop. Stop. Let your disposition be more like Mary. I I don't understand. Tell me more. I can't put all this together. I'm struggling with that. Be believing, Jesus says. Here I am. Believe. Believe. Now, let's be be fair to Thomas. Thomas wasn't the only one who struggled with belief. If you remember when the the women went back to the uh, disciples to tell them they'd seen the risen Christ, they didn't believe them. So why is he any different? Well, John shows us that Thomas went beyond the others in his disbelief. The ten wanted to believe, and so Peter and John ran to the tomb, seeking to see what evidence there was because they wanted to believe. Thomas, on the other hand, was determined not to believe and therefore he wouldn't see unless the evidence somehow came to him in the form that he required. He probably thought this was a foolproof tactic. He was wrong. Here is Jesus, wounds and all. Thomas wasn't a doubter. We've misnamed him. He was a disbeliever. He hugs his disbelief and says, I'm not letting go of this. He says, unless I have what I want as proof, I will never believe. How different, how different, even from the apostle John who writes this gospel. If you go to chapter, to stay in this chapter, look at verse eight. You see that John, when he rushed to the tomb, went to the tomb and he records that when he saw just the linens, just the linens, nobody, just the linens and the, and the, the face covering of Jesus neatly folded, he believed Why? Because he wanted. Not to argue, he wanted to see what was. Hey, listen, Jesus had said, there's coming a day, I'm gonna be crucified. But I will also rise from the dead. John put Jesus' words together with what he saw in the tomb, and he said, Believe, not Thomas, not Thomas. How different, how different. Thomas is a man with a frank kind of obstinate unwillingness to believe. Another word for Thomas is, yeah, cantankerous. Some of you have forgotten it already. <laughs> Now, let me ask you a question, though. What right? I mean, let's just put it out there. What right does Thomas have to set conditions for his own belief? Say, well, it's his life. Hmm. I'm gonna ask this question. Let me ask it a little different. What right does Thomas have to set conditions for the God of the universe when it comes to evidence? Now, I'm gonna say again. I'm gonna say again, please hear me. There is nothing wrong with seeking evidence when you're making a life-changing decision. I'm asking the question though, what gives us and what gives Thomas the right to tell God what his evidence must be in order for us to believe? What right does Thomas have to say this must happen or I won't accept the resurrection as true? What is Thomas's problem? We need to know what his problem really is. Why? He is so hesitant, so resistant, so dogmatic, so stubborn when it comes to spiritual things. What is it? What is it? I want to offer an answer to you. It's this. Thomas has the same problem I have. Thomas makes too much of himself and too little of God. He believes more in his ability to navigate life and find life than he does in God's. And so pride is surely at work here. That's why he asks for seeing and touching the wounds, it's much more than he needs. Listen, listen, think about it with me just for a minute. Jesus had already proven to Thomas and the other uh, apostles who he really was. He had shown and said that he was no ordinary man. Miracle after miracle after miracle, message upon unbelievable message upon unbelievable message, powerful sermon after powerful sign. He had shown Thomas and the rest that resurrection could be real. He raised Lazarus from the dead. Jesus told them what would happen before it happened. He would die and rise again. And now Thomas's own colleagues, men that he could trust and should trust, tell him that it's true. Jesus has risen from the dead. And nevertheless, Thomas will not believe. He will not. He will not believe in the person or the promises of the Jesus he knew. He would not believe that the person he knew could be the Jesus who lives. Why? Why? I'll tell you why. If the Jesus Thomas knew had been raised from the dead, what that means is absolutely life-changing for Thomas. It means that Jesus is more than just a great prophet, a great teacher with great power. It means that this Jesus that he knew and loved and followed as a great teacher and a great prophet would have an authority that could require more than Thomas was willing to give it would mean that Jesus was right Thomas wrong Jesus was perfectly pure and Thomas's life next to Jesus perfectly sinful Loyalty to the point of death is one thing, to admit wrong, to die to self, to surrender to another's will rather than your own will. All of those are actions that none of us want to take. But if Jesus is God's Christ and God's son, then dying to self, surrendering to his will rather than to my own are actions you have to take or you're a fool. Far better just to deny it than To admit you're a fool. Look, can I just say this? We need to be really, really careful that when we talk about Jesus, we're talking about the Jesus that is, not the Jesus we'd like for there to be. For Thomas, it was okay if he was a great teacher, prophet, miracle worker, and all that. It was not okay if he was if he actually had come back from the dead. We like our Jesus tame. We like our Jesus comfortable. Yes, we like Jesus with some power because there are times when we need somebody to step in and help us. But this Jesus, this Jesus who Shows up and meets your challenge. This Jesus who does not back down. This Jesus who speaks truth. Something bad has happened somewhere. But I'm sure it'll be all right. Now, but this Jesus, he isn't saved. Oh, yes, he's, he's, he's gentle and kind, but he's also strong. He doesn't fit into our nice little pretty picture. He has power. He comes. He refuses to adjust who he is to please us, but he requires that we adjust who we are to please him. Not safe. Not safe great and loving and good and true. But when he comes, he wants everything. And if you're into directing your own life, if you're into being in control of your own life, if you've got your own plans for your own life, he is absolutely dangerous. Because he's going to undo all that if you take him seriously. Thomas refuses to believe not for want of evidence so much as in spite of all the evidence he's already seen Thomas seemed to be rejecting the witness of the other apostles, but the reality is he's rejecting God. God was working in the new way he had promised and Thomas needed to get with God's program, but Thomas wants his own program. We gotta be very careful that when God isn't what we want, when what he wants is not what we want, that we don't try to change him to suit us or that we don't try somehow to keep challenging him so that we don't really have to deal with him. We've Got to be careful because in the end, Jesus comes and says, you got a choice. Believe or disbelieve. To believe is to receive me as I am, not as you want me to be. To believe in me is to rest all of you, give all of you, every aspect of you to me on the basis of who I am. You can't say you believe in me and hold anything back. I'm dangerous. Really, really dangerous. Thomas didn't want that Jesus. You don't want that Jesus. I don't want that Jesus. We desperately need that Jesus. Finally, I want you to see with me how Christ corrects disbelief personally. Look at verses 28 to 29. Thomas answered him and said, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who haven't seen, and yet they still believe. What a picture here. Christ comes personally, and he corrects Thomas's unbelief. The fact that he overcomes it is seen in Thomas's perfect confession. I'm telling you, this is the confession. This is the confession. When you say this and you mean this, it saves. It restores. He says, my Lord, my God. Huge step in Thomas's life. A huge step in your life and mine. When we're actually able to say that. Thomas sees the wounds of Christ, he hears his words, but the wounds and the words are not all that he sees. Hearing Jesus' commands to him, Thomas realizes that Jesus had heard his challenge, had heard his defiant words, and yet still, Jesus came. And his mind and his heart, not his eyes and his hands, his mind and his heart get the message. This is something only God could do. This is something only God would do. And, and this is something only God decides to do. And God is standing, speaking to my mind and my heart, saying, I love you still in spite of you. What would you have done if you'd been Jesus and done all that you had done, shown all that you'd shown, been through all that you'd been through? And you got one cantankerous, disciple who refuses to believe. What would you have done? Would you have come and said peace? I think not. I think you would have said some other things. Not Jesus. There is something here that Thomas saw and felt that had nothing to do, watch now, with his physical eyes and his hands and everything to do with his spirit or his heart. The experience of Jesus' presence, his all-embracing knowledge, his all-forgiving love, they all converge, and they are the cause of Thomas's loss of his disbelief. They are the cause of Thomas' confession. He experiences the presence of Christ His heart and mind are impacted. And he says, God is with us. God is for us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so Thomas speaks not to Jesus here, but about Jesus. He's actually speaking to himself and standing there with this revelation to his mind and heart. Thomas says, my Lord and my God that is who you are physical sight made thomas believe that jesus was risen but an inward sight made thomas believe in jesus as his lord and his god and thomas's confession leads christ to ask a brief question and utter what has been called the last and greatest of the Beatitudes. You see it there at the end. You believe that I've been raised because you've seen, blessed and happy, and to be envied are those who have never seen me and yet have believed, trusted in, relied on me. Thomas, you've seen with your physical eyes. I've met you at the point of your heart and your spirit. And you've believed and I'm glad there will be others who come after you who can't see what your eyes have seen, who can't touch what your hands want to touch, but will still believe every bit as much as you do. They will be saved just as you're saved. They will be happy and rejoicing just as you are happy and rejoicing now. They will find me. They will know me. They will love me because I will find them and show myself to them. Loved ones, the object of a true believer's faith is not a right set of truths about Jesus. The object of our faith is the real Jesus whom that set of truths rightly describes the presence of true faith is not merely a matter of accepting the facts about jesus and his death and resurrection it is a matter of finding jesus finding you in the gospel in the word that is about him i don't know of any better way of describing conversion than than finding jesus finding you For a long time, it was common among believers to ask each other, when did you come to know Jesus? And by that, they didn't mean, when did you come to know about Jesus? They meant, when did you come to know him personally? When was the time you found Jesus Finding you, touching your heart, touching your mind, saying to you, I am here. See my wounds for you. See my suffering for you. See my love for you. I've heard everything you've ever said. I've seen everything you've ever done. And still, I am here. Me finding you. Do you find me finding That's what it means to be born again. One day in the midst of my sin and suffering and all the mistakes and all the wrong things that I had done in the midst of a life that was impossibly heading in the wrong direction, one day, one day I found Jesus finding me and he saved. And that is every bit as real to me as anything Thomas experienced then. So here is my question: Have you found Jesus? finding? How does that happen? Always happens through his word, by a spirit. Do you remember Paul says in Romans 10, how can, they, how can they believe unless they hear? And how can they hear unless there is a preacher, someone to tell them? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. See, here's the thing, here's the thing. The most likely way for you to find Jesus finding you is going to be in the gospel. The testimony, the witness of those who saw him. But more than that, in that Jesus attends or comes with his word and shows himself to us in the places that matter most in our minds and in our hearts. Every time the book is opened, every time the word of God is taught, is preached, is read is heard there is an opportunity to meet the risen living Jesus he finds us he meets us to save us and then once that's done he finds us and he keeps meeting us to fellowship with us and it is sweet it is good And true believers know exactly what I'm talking about, even though I cannot put it in words. Yes, 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 many know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But that is not the same thing as knowing the Christ, the Son of the living God. And being able to say what Thomas said, He is not the Lord and the God. My Lord, my God. And the only thing you can do at that point is to get down on your knees and give him everything holding nothing back. Do you know him? Have you found him finding you? Even now, in this moment, Christ comes. I believe with all my heart. He takes his word by his spirit. And he says to you and me, here am I. Will you believe? He says to others, Will you keep believing? Will you trust me as I am and not as you want me to be? See the ones. Peace, wholeness, wellness, fullness, restoration, they all come here. Lord Jesus, you are here. There are minds and hearts here. Seeking you, perhaps finding you for the first time. There are believers here this day who know exactly whereof I speak, and yet into their lives has come some tragedy, into their lives has come some unexpected blessing. And some have stepped away from you, looking for a different savior. Others stepped away from you, seeking fulfillment in something they can see and taste and touch and feel and enjoy immediately here now. And to each and all of us, you come and you show us your wounds and you say, peace be with you. And you say, don't be disbelieving, but believe. I am God's Christ. I am God's Son. (laughs) I am your Lord, your God. Trust me. Give yourself to me. Hold nothing back. Be mine. I will be yours. Grant, Lord God, that our eyes, the eyes of our hearts and minds, would see and know the living presence of Jesus right here, right now. Lord Jesus, thank you for not coming with condemnation with confrontation, the kind that opens the way to life. We acknowledge, Lord, that the way you answer our unbelief is with your living presence. Through your word, by your spirit, you Grant, Lord God, grant, Lord Jesus, that today would be the day disbelievers would believe for eternal life and disbelieving believers would come back to you in full and fresh surrender for Jesus. heads bowed and eyes closed if Jesus has met you today with all your heart you're ready to give your life to him to acknowledge your sin and your need of a savior Today is the day when you would cross that line and stop disbelieving but believing. Turn to him right now, confess your sin. Tell him he's right, you're wrong. Tell him that, that you believe and tell him that you, from this point forward, you choose to believe on him, in him, rely on him, give him everything. Say to him, My Lord and my God, and you will be saved. Believers in the room, look at your life. Does he have all of you? Does he have all of you? Has something come? drawn you away from him would you not come back to him this morning would you not come back is he not enough is his love for you not enough is his power for you not enough will you not come back I don't know what's happened good or bad I don't know but I know Jesus I know Jesus I know Jesus and he's greater better Richer, deeper, stronger. And if you're a true believer, you know him too. Come back. Come back. Come back. Lord God, hear the prayers of your people as they come back. Hear the prayers of new followers of Jesus as they surrender to you for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thanks for joining me today. If you enjoy these podcasts, take a moment to rate and review CG Life with Steve Kortz. My prayer is that God will continue to inspire and challenge you in Christ as week by week we apply the gospel faith to real life.